Okay, you can turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've been coming through 1 Timothy together. And as you see on your study guide, we're at chapters 2, verse 1 through 10. You know, there's a big shift that happens in, in a Christian's life when they begin to understand that when they come to God's Word, they're not just coming to learn something, although they are, but they're coming to enjoy something. God's Word speaks about itself as this feast that you enjoy. Psalm 119, 103, Oh, how sweet are your words to my taste, like honey on my lips. So I want to encourage you to lean in, not to just learn something this morning, but to actually enjoy the Word of God. Let's read together verses 1 through 10. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let's pray. Father, thank You for allowing us the opportunity to come to Your Word again. And Lord, we do take it for granted, but we don't want to take it for granted. That we get to hear Your Word. We get to open Bibles. And Your Word is sweet to our taste, like honey on our lips, Lord. God, thank You for letting us come here again. God, forgive us for moments where we've taken it lightly. Forgive us, God, for coldness towards Your Word. God, forgive us, Lord, for hearing it to be entertained or merely to learn. God, help us to enjoy Your Word this morning. We're Your people, God, and we're guided by You. We're guided by You, Lord. God, I pray that Your Word would have such a supreme place in our lives. You said that 
You dwell in that high and holy place with Him who's humble and contrite, Lord, and those who tremble at Your Word. God, make us those holy and contrite and humble ones that when Your Word is read or talked about, God, that we are those who tremble. Holy Spirit, we want to be addressed by You. Through the Scriptures, please, Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Heighten our affections for Christ. Open our eyes to things we can't see. Lead us by Your Word into Your presence. Thank You, Lord, for Your help. We love You in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, 1 Timothy is the ecclesiology letter. Ecclesiology is just a fancy word. You can use it if it's helpful to you. Uh, It just means the study of the church. This is the ecclesiology letter. And the reason we call it that is because of the context. You know, you got chapter 1, verse 3. Paul tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus to make war on false doctrine in that local church. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 tells us the reason he wrote this. I write these things that you might know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The content of this letter just speaks to ecclesiology. So this is the ecclesiology letter. And we live in a church culture, if you haven't noticed this, that is profoundly weak in ecclesiology. And we're not without opinions. We're a very opinionated culture, and yet extremely weak and ecclesiology, but I want us, Grace Community Church, that when we hear the word ecclesiology, or when we hear, uh, you know, the church ought to do this, or the church ought to be this, I want us to be a people that our mind runs to 1 Timothy, that our minds run to 1 Timothy, the, the church order letter, the ecclesiology letter. Modern day ecclesiology is full of things that are not in, the, not in God's word. Pastor search committees, startup costs, launch dates, because you know you need a soft launch and a hard launch, small group programs, discipleship programs, sometimes exercise programs because your body's a temple, door greeters, choir leaders, the pastor's staff, relevant preaching, but let's not call it preaching, we're modern, let's call it speaking Cultural engagement seminars, vision statements, mission statements, good sound equipment, nice facilities, and of course, a 10-year growth plan for your business. I I mean church. And it's modern-day ecclesiology. But Paul, what's your ecclesiology? And and you've got 1 Timothy, and you've got chapter 1, sound doctrine. That's important, right? Sound doctrine. Chapter 4, expository preaching. Chapter 3, uh, biblical qualified elders of a local church, plurality of leadership. Also, chapter 3, biblically qualified deacons. And you got these things and you know, go on and on that express uh, uh, Paul's ecclesiology, not the modern day stuff. I want us, when our minds think about what does the Bible say about the church, to one of the first places we run is what does 1 Timothy say? What does this letter say? In this section we're in today, Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, it addresses the topic of prayer in the church. 
chapter 2, verse 1, it says that first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all people. Prayer. Chapter 2, verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. What connects verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 is this subject of prayer. So how do we understand the place of prayer in our ecclesiology? How do we understand the place of prayer in our ecclesiology? And the first thing we see in this text, and this phrase is at the top of your study guide, we see the primacy and the urgency of corporate prayer in the church. Now we find that in verse 1 to verse 2a. So verse 1 to the first part of verse 2. We see the primacy and the urgency of corporate prayer in the church. Now I just want to unpack that statement. I want to try to unpack that statement. Now why do I say corporate prayer? Why do I say the primacy and urgency of corporate prayer? Because this charge from Paul to Timothy is not about Timothy's personal prayer life. When you read this charge, that I urge you that prayer, supplication, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all people, you shouldn't be thinking about your personal private prayer life. That's spoken to in the Bible. Matthew 6, 6 is an example that when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your fathers in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the Bible speaks to that. But this passage is speaking about corporate prayer, not your prayer life, not my prayer life, but our prayers together. Now why do I say that? Remember the context, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says, This letter is written that you might know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. This is about public prayers, not private prayers, corporate prayers. Think about our corporate prayer life. Now I said the primacy of corporate prayer. Why do I say the primacy? Well, verse 1 says, first of all. Look at that phrase in verse 1. First of all, then I urge prayer in the local church. So he says, first of all. Now, as Paul lays out his sound ecclesiology, what would you have expected to be first of all? What would you have expected to be primary? First thing on his list. How do, how do you determine a church's health? You personally. When you think about the health of a local church, is this local church healthy? How do you decide or how do you discern the health of a local church? Now some people have no standard at all. They read a little Bible. They seem to appreciate Jesus. Check. Healthy church. They don't have any standards. No biblical standards for their they're, they're discerning a, a local church is healthy or not. And out of the small group of people that have developed biblical standards to discern a church's health, I'm afraid that oftentimes the prayer standard gets left out. And yet Paul says, first of all. Paul says, first of all. When Paul thought about the health of a church, being on the nine marks website was not enough for him. Do they pray? Are these a praying people? First of all, I urge that prayers and supplications and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all people. Paul, what do you want to see? What do you want to see in the church at Ephesus? Well, first of all, I want to see them as a house of prayer. That's primary. It's the primacy of corporate prayer 
in the local church. So it's at the very top of his list. What about your list? Is it at the top of the list of your desires for Grace Community Church and the health of this local church that we be a people of prayer? Is that at the top of your list? Is it first of all? If it was, think how that would affect the way you engage corporate prayer. When we meet together on Sundays and we call out to God in prayer, when, when corporate and public prayers happen at other places throughout the week, think how you would engage public prayer. If this was first of all, if it was at the top of your list, prayer together was the mark of the early church. You go read the book of Acts, and what you see in the book of Acts, we don't have an individual's prayer life traced out for us. We have a corporate prayer life traced out for us in the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 14, it mentions, it mentions this uh, 120 people in the church of Jerusalem. They're just 120 at that time. And it says in Acts 1.14 that they were devoted to prayer together. First thing we know that the gathered church did, they're devoted to prayer together in that early church. Chapter 2, verse 42, it says, Now they're 3,000 strong, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. Chapter 3, verse 1, we see them going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, it says, Peter and John met up with their friends. I love that. Their church is their friends. They met up with their friends, their companions. And it said they lifted their voices together to God. They're praying. Chapter 12, Peter and John get out of jail. They go to Mary's house, and guess what the church is doing? In the middle of the night, an all-night prayer meeting. Chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, a prayer meeting is going down that sparked the greatest missions movement that's ever hit planet Earth. They were marked by prayer. Grace Community Church, are we marked by prayer. Are we a people of prayer? How would our corporate prayer life be judged? Leonard Ravenhill, who's encouraged me as much as anybody in my prayer life and in the call of God to be a people of prayer, Leonard Ravenhill said this, the first thing the early church did was pray. It's the last thing the modern church does today. Prayer was their first choice. Today, it's our last resort. Before the early church did anything else, they prayed. We do everything else but pray. It was their first priority. It's our last priority. If we are weak in prayer, then we are weak everywhere. If we're weak in prayer, then we're weak everywhere. You've got the premise. We're unpacking this phrase. The premise of corporate prayer in the local church, but I also said the primacy and the urgency. The urgency. Now I get that from this phrase in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that prayer. He's urging them towards corporate prayer. This is urgency. The urgency of corporate prayer. This is not a suggestion. This is not a church order suggestion. Paul saying, hey, I really like this liturgy. How about you? He said, no, I'm urging corporate prayer. I want to push you towards corporate prayer. Grace Community Church, we must be a people of, pray. we, people of prayer. We must love prayer. We must be diligent in corporate prayer. We must delight in corporate prayer. Prayerlessness, prayerlessness is a sin. 
1 Samuel 12, 23 says, Far be it from me to sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Prayerlessness is a sin. Prayerlessness is self-confidence. It's, I got this, Lord. This old church thing and this nation's thing we're trying to do, we got it. Prayerlessness is self-confidence. And prayerlessness is stupid. You've got access to the God who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, does all that He pleases. And we say, no thanks. We'll take up the arm of the flesh. It's stupid. So if you want to put that together, stupid, self-confident sin. Prayerlessness. It's urgent that we pray. And to quote Ravenhill again, Ravenhill said, the church that is not praying is Playing, the church that is not praying is straying. Now, that's the premise and urgency of corporate prayer. Now, does this passage of Scripture give us any direction on how to pray? Does it tell us how to pray? And it does. Again, in verse 1 through verse 2a, it tells us how to pray. Now, I'm going to give us another phrase to summarize that, and we're going to unpack it. Listen to this phrase. It tells us to pray like this. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, especially that they may be saved. Now we're going to unpack that. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, especially that they may, that they may be saved. So all kinds of prayers. Where do we get that from? Where do we get that from? We get it from verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is all kinds of prayers. This isn't some dead prayer list with everybody's medical needs. That's important and we should pray for that too. But it's not limited to that. This is all kinds of prayers. This is supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Supplications is the supply. God, give us supply. It's those kind of prayers that express our need to God. God, we need you. We need power to be your witnesses. We need power from you to walk, whole, walk out holy lives. We need wisdom from you. We need, we need, we need. It's supplications. This second word, prayers, is this idea of drawing near to God and pouring out your heart before Him. I love that in 1 Samuel about Hannah, that little phrase. It says, Hannah poured out her heart to the Lord, unloading it all to God. The third word, intercessions, is standing in the gap before God on behalf of another. Going to God on behalf of another. God, save them. God, open their eyes. God, help them to see. God, help them. God, grow them. God, strengthen them. God, comfort them. It's intercession. And then that fourth word is often neglected. It says thanksgivings. This is giving thanks to God. This is worship to God. This is, Lord, I don't have anything to ask You for. Praise to Your name. You're beautiful. You're glorious. There's none like You, Lord. It's prayers of worship to God. So that's all kinds of prayers. Then I said all kinds of prayers for what? All kinds of people. All kinds of people. Now, where am I getting that from? Again, verse 1. Prayers, supplications, intercessions, giving it thanks for who? It says all people. All people. Now, who are these all people? Now, chapter 1, if we go back to chapter 1, it can tell us a little bit about how, who these all people are. Because 
If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, first of all, then, then, a continuation. So that then points us back to chapter 1. Well, what kind of people did we see in chapter 1? We saw the foremost of sinners that's now heaven-bound, and we saw the foremost in the church that's now hell-bound. We saw Paul, who's the foremost of sinners, and now he's, he's heaven-bound. Pray for people like that. And we saw the foremost in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have fallen away and trapped by false doctrine. Now they're hell-bound. Pray for people like that. People like Paul that seem so far away, they can never be saved. What? God's mercy can reach anyone. Pray for people like that. They seem so far away. They seem so lost to you. It seems hopeless to you. It might seem that way to you, but it's not to God. Pray for people like Paul. Chief of sinners whom God can save. Or people like Hymenaeus and Alexander who were, who were these, uh, some they had a name for themselves in the church, but they fell away. They seem like they're doing okay. They seem like they don't need prayer. Don't believe that. Pray for them that they might make it to the end. All kinds of people, pray for them. That's in chapter 1. If you, look back to, if you go back to chapter 2, it says, oh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1, it says all people, and then it goes on to say kings and those who are in high positions. Pray for all people, even kings. Even leaders, even governing authorities, pray for them too. Verse 7 says Gentiles, or the nations, pray for the nations. Now the idea here, when we read this and it says, I want you to pray for kings and for those who are in high position, those who are in governing authorities. That's not limiting our corporate prayer to we only pray for governing authorities, we only pray for kings. It's meant to broaden the scope of your praying. Imagine that if you come to me and say, Ron, who should we pray for? I mean, I say, pray for everybody. Pray for all people. Pray for Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Pray for uh, uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia. Pray for President Trump. Pray for everybody. You see how it broadens out the scope of your prayers? The idea here is we serve a global God, and we should go to Him with global prayers. We don't serve a village God and go to Him with our little tiny village prayers, but a global God that can do all things and knows all things. Let your prayer life show that. There was a guy named A.B. Simpson who in the 1800s started the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And uh, he was a big influence on Leonard Ravenhill and, and several others. And his wife said that he would wake up in the morning, he would hit his knees, and he would clutch a globe. And he'd weep and pray. I want that to be the visual. That as a church, that we, are, we have a global God and we pray, pray global prayers to that God. All people, nations, kings, governments, those who seem to be doing well, those who seem to be so far away, pray. We've got access to the living God. Pray, church, pray. If an outsider come, came into our meetings... Sunday after Sunday, and they heard our corporate prayers. And fellowship group after fellowship group throughout the week, and they heard our corporate prayers. Or, or when you gather people together at random times in your house, and they hear the corporate prayers, if they could hear all of it for a whole month, would they walk away and see that these people believe they serve a global, glorious God that can do all things? Now, I said all kinds of prayer. So how do we pray? All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, especially that they might be 
saved. Now, what do I mean by that? A healthy church prays all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, with an, especially with an evangelistic tilt to their praying, a salvation bent to their prayers. Now, where do I, where do I get that from? You get that from the all connection, A-L-L, all connection. Look at it in verse 1. Who does it say pray for? At the end of verse 1, it says, all people. You see it? A-L-L. All people. Notice the pattern. Go down to verse 4. Because there's a God who, verse 4, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Go to verse 6. Who gave Him Himself as a ransom for all. He's saying, I want you to pray for all people. And as you trace out that all, because He desires all to be saved, and and He gave Himself as a ransom for all, therefore, there's a salvation tip. I want to see them saved. There's that sort of tilt to our praying. We pray for all people, all kinds of people, all kinds of prayers with this soul-winning bent. That's what a healthy church does. Now, next question is why should we pray? Why should we do all this? Now, there's a lot of answers that could be given. We could talk about the weakness of, of us, right? Apart from Him, we can do nothing, John 15. We could talk about the greatness of God. Why would you not go to this God? A pathway has been made by Jesus dying for your sins and making a way into the throne room of God. You get to pray to Him, why would you not? We can make all kinds of arguments about why you should pray. But what does the text teach? What does this text tell us about how to pray? And we see it in verse 2b. That's the second part of verse 2. And verse 3 and verse 4. So 2b to verse 4. We see why pray. We're given four reasons. Four mighty motivations to prayer. And I want to just unpack verse 2b to verse 4. Let's read it together and I'll tell you quickly those four motivations to prayer. Number one. Verse 2b, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Number two, this is good. Number three, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And number four, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Four mighty motivations for prayer. So let's unpack that for just a second. Number one, right here, verse 2. Again, it says that we may, why pray? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this first motivation to prayer is directly linked to why we pray for governing authorities. Why do we pray for governing authorities? Well, there's a direct link. That we might lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. Now, what does us live in a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity, what does that have to do with praying for governing authorities? Well, because... There's some governments under which when you try to live godly and dignified in this life, you lose peace. You are not left to yourself. Paul experienced this in different places. Think about Acts 16. When Paul experienced the government was not on his side. He's preaching the gospel. He's trying to live in a godly and dignified way. It's what he's doing. And he gets beat down by the government and thrown in prison. Acts 19 In Ephesus, the government's on his side. He's trying to live in a godly and dignified way. He's preaching the gospel, and he's about to be beat down for his faith, and the government intercedes for him and protects him and watches out for him. 
We see this throughout history. William Tyndale, the government was not on his side. 1500s, he just wanted to take the Bible, translate it into the English language. He has to flee England and go to Germany and smuggle Bibles in. Eventually, he's burned at the stake. Maybe a good example would be, have you ever heard of Hernhut? I'm saying that right? Hernhut. It's this place in the 1700s where... where um, uh, all these people fled from religious persecution to this one place under the leadership of a man named Zinzendorf, and he led out this community. It was peace. It was peace as they lived out their godly and dignified lives. And one of the greatest mission forces to hit planet Earth flow, flowed out of that situation. So pray, why pray for kings and those who are in authority? That we might live a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Grace Community Church, pray for your governing authorities. Pray for them. Don't take for granted the peace that you have because of your governing authorities even now. Don't take it for granted. Think about it just for a minute. That, that you, most of you here can pretty much travel wherever you want to travel freely. You know it's not like that in all the world? Think of the effect that has on missions. Don't take it for granted. That right now, almost everyone here, you could preach the glorious gospel and face little persecution for it in this culture that we live in. Don't take it for granted. You can raise your children the way you so please. You don't have a government telling you how to take my kids and put them into their education. Don't take it for granted, but pray for your governing authorities. So that's reason number one, motivation to pray. Number two, now the following motivations, two, three, and four, they broaden out. Not just the reason we should pray for kings and those in authority, but the reason we pray. The reason we go after corporate prayer for all people. So number two, why pray? Verse three says, I love this. This is good. Why pray? Man, it's good. It's just good. Do you view corporate prayer like this? What we just did just a moment ago, a couple times, three times already, do you view it as good? Or we just need to bypass that so we can get to the sermon. Or do you see it as good? Imagine uh, Jeremiah 33.3. This verse says, call on the Lord. Imagine this. Call on the Lord and I'll show you great and mighty things which you didn't know. Listen, that's good. John 14, 13, whatever Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do it, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. That's good. John 16, 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy might be full. That's good. Why pray? Because it's good. Third motivation also is in verse 3 is that it is pleasing to God. You see it there? This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now that, now that matters to us, right? We want to please the Lord. Imagine your children. Dad, Mom, why are y'all so excited about going to the prayer meeting? Why are you so excited about getting there on Sunday and lifting up your voices together with the church? Why are you so excited about that, Mom, Dad? Son, because it's pleasing to God. That's why. Because He delights in it. Because He likes it. He, he loves that. That's why I'm excited about it. It's pleasing in the sight of God. Now, there's, this is a scripture 
that literally transformed my prayer life when about nine or ten years ago. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. It's, listen to this. It says, the prayers of the upright are his delight. The prayer of the upright is his delight. And I remember reading that verse and thinking, why, you know, because sometimes it takes diligence to pray. Sometimes you just want to be there. Sometimes it takes diligence. Sometimes you just love it, right? And here I am wanting to be a faithful man of prayer. And I read this verse. The prayer of the upright is a delight to my God. Fourth motivation, final one here, is found in verse 4. And the way I would summarize this is this. God's desires must be our desires. God's desires must be our desires. What are His desires? Look at verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires, what do you desire, Lord? That all would be saved to come to the knowledge of truth. Us too. We desire that too. So pray. Ask God to do it. That He would save souls. You know, this verse 4, it really reveals our problem. That we need to be saved and we need to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our problem is iniquity and ignorance. We need to be saved from iniquity that leads us to hell. And we we need to be delivered from ignorance, our spiritual blindness, and we need to come to the knowledge of the truth. And verse 4 says we have a God that's eager to do that. He desires that all would be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm afraid that oftentimes in church, God is portrayed as a reluctant Savior. Do we pray? Grace Community Church, do we pray to a reluctant, hesitant Savior? As if we say, God, would you please save that man? I know you're not really interested in that sort of thing. I know you don't really, you're not all about that. You're about other things. But would you maybe save him? We don't pray to a reluctant God. We don't pray to a hesitant God. We pray to the Savior that says, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray to the God of Revelation 5, 9 that gives that glimpse. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has redeemed us by your blood from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. Revelation 7 says, Multitudes that cannot be numbered, standing before the throne, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, this God, 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We do not pray to a reluctant Savior, but to a God who is mighty and eager to save. Are your desires His desires? Are His desires your desires? The way he lo- His eagerness to see souls saved, to do it, is that your eagerness? And how does that affect your prayer life? How does that affect our prayer life? Now, that last phrase in verse 4, it says that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. What truth? What What truth must they come to the knowledge of? What what truth is it that saves from iniquity and ignorance? What truth? And that's where we come to verse 5 and 6. Again, we're just going to unpack this sentence, verse 5 through 6. Now this, this is, and I hate to correct Greg publicly. I hate to do it. 
But this is the real perfect gospel phrase. He said last week that 115 was, and I'm sure there's an argument there. I guess we can have two in the same book. Okay. The real perfect gospel phrase. What, what truth must they come to the knowledge of? Well, verse 5 and 6 gives it to us. Here it is. Let's, let's read it and I'll tell you the parts in which we'll try to unpack it. Verse 5. For there is one God. So number one, there is one God. Number two, and there is one mediator between God and men. Number three, the man Christ Jesus. Number four, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's unpack that. So number one, that verse just said, listen, this is the truth they must come to the knowledge of. There's one God. There's only one. And He's the glorious Creator of all things. There's one God. He's Creator God. All creation belongs to Him. And because He's Creator, He's the King. And therefore, all allegiance of all this creation, even you, belongs to the Creator. Belongs to the one God. There's one God. He is judged. Therefore, every person will give an account to whether or not you gave that allegiance to Him. He's Creator. He's King. He's God. There's one God. One God. Number two, it says, there's one mediator between God and men. Mediator. What is that? What, what's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. It's one that stands in the gap between two others. And in this case, between God and men, there's a mediator. There's a middleman. A mediator. And here it says this mediator is Jesus the Christ. Now, why would we need a mediator? Why in the world would we need a mediator? Why not just waltz right up to God with some confidence and call Him Father? Because Romans 5 calls you and me, without the mediator, a hated enemy of God. It, why can't you just waltz right up to Him? Why do you need a mediator? Because of your sin. Because of God's wrath. Because God one day is going to explode on planet earth, pouring out wrath and anger and judgment, and people are going to burn in hell forever, and the deserving ones are me and you. We need a mediator. And the mediator, it says here, is Jesus. The only one. There's only one. There's one God, there's one mediator. There's only one. I love how Greg last week's quoted that verse that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came, and nobody else came for you. Muhammad didn't come for you. Buddha didn't come for you. No one else came for you. Christ came. There's only one mediator. There's only one. And that's because only one is qualified. Jesus is the only one qualified. Now, how is He qualified? That brings me to my third phrase here. How's he qualified? It says, the man Christ Jesus. How's he qualified mediator between God and man? Well, because he's fully, he's fully God. That's Christ. You know, the Christ was talked about all through the Old Testament as the one who was coming to be Emmanuel, God with us. So he's Christ. He's God. But he's also the man Christ. He's fully God, fully man. Perfect mediator to stand between God and man because he is the God-man who took flesh onto Himself when He came into this world. 
He took human nature onto His divine nature. Now He's truly God and truly man. If He were not truly man, He could not die for you because God can't die. If He were not truly God, His death would not be valuable. Not valuable enough to save you. But He's fully God, fully man. In the next phrase, verse verse 6 says, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Isn't that beautiful? He gave Himself as a ransom. Do you understand the death on Jesus' death on the cross? Do you understand it as a ransom? That a lot of people have been crucified throughout history, but this death on the cross was a ransom. What's a ransom? It's the payment to release a slave. It's the payment to release a prisoner. His death on that cross was like no other death. His death was a ransom to set prisoners free. It was a payment to set slaves free. Think about that. At the cross, at the cross, our sins were laid upon Jesus Christ and He paid the penalty for our sins so we could be released from them. He's the perfect mediator. He took something from us And He took something from God. He took from us our sin. Our sin was laid upon Him. And He took from God justice and wrath and anger that is due our sin. And so that we could be at peace with this God. Although we don't deserve it. Now, with that Gospel in view, Verse 5 and 6, the Gospel in view. And with this call to prayer in view, verse, verses 1 through 4, this call to prayer, what, what does Paul desire to see in every church? What does the Apostle Paul write in the first Timothy, write in the Timothy? What does he desire to see in every church? And here's a phrase. It's coming out of verse 7 through 10. It tells us in verse 7 through 10. Here's the phrase. Holy men and women in every church devoted to prayer. So verse 7-10 through tells us what Paul wants to see in every church. He wants to see holy men and women in every church devoted to prayer. Now let's unpack that phrase. First, I want to read it and make sure you understand the flow of thought. Look at verse 7. For this I was appointed. Some of that gospel we just talked about, that One God and one mediator who gave Himself as a ransom. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So He's saying, this gospel, I'm a proclaimer of this gospel. I'm a teacher of this gospel. I'm an apostle that cares for this gospel. To the Gentiles, to the nations. Therefore, look at verse 8, I desire then... Since I am that, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, and that likewise is pulling back into men praying, also the women praying. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. And it goes on. So what you have here is, I desire that the men pray, and it's undergirded by holy living. And I desire that the women pray and to be undergirded by holy living. So here's the phrase. Holy men and women in every church 
devoted to prayer. Now, let's, let's try to unpack that real quick. Why do I say every church? Every church. Because verse 8 right here, it says, every place. I desire then that in every place. That means not just in the church at Ephesus, but in every place that there would be churches lifting up this incense of prayer to God. If you need a good cross-reference, go to Malachi 1.11. It says, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. That's from one side of the planet to the other. The Lord's name, the Lord, he says, from rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be great among the nations. Listen, in every place, same, same phrase here, in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. My name shall be great among the nations. Every place, in all nations, he desires that there will be a church that prays to this God. Now, I said men and women, holy men and women in every church. Why do I say men and women? Why make that distinction? Well, because the text does. It says, the text says, I desire that men pray everywhere and likewise the women that they pray. So the text makes this distinction. So let me, let me encourage based off of that distinction. Men of Grace Community Church, hear me out, men. Pray. Be people of prayer. Pray. I, I just, I just uh, was finished reading a, a biography of um, D.A. Carson's writing about his dad. If your children, men, if your children write that biography about you, will they know you as men of prayer? Will they know you as men of the prayer meeting? Men that want to be at the prayer meeting. Men that want to be a part of corporate prayer. Call out to God with the saints. Women of Grace Community Church, hear me out. Pray. Be women of prayer. When you aspire to be a woman of God, what are you aspiring to be? When you say, I want to be a woman of God, what's coming to your mind? Well, one thing Paul wants to put in front of your mind is that you would be a woman of prayer. Women of Grace Community Church long to be at the place of corporate prayer with the saints. Men and women of prayer. And the last thing I'll say about that phrase is I said holy. Holy men and women in every church devoted to prayer. And where I'm getting the holy from is it says, and we're not, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but that we'll say that for next week. But just this principle of men, I want you to pray. How? What undergirds your prayer life? Lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Women, I want you to likewise pray. How do you do it? In, in modest apparel, being, being uh, marked by good works, it goes on to say. Holiness, holy lives. That's what we want to go after in this church and every church on planet earth, that, that they would be holy men and women devoted to prayer. Now, does that really matter? That you're a man, you're a woman of prayer, we're a church of prayer. Does it really matter that we live holy lives? Yes. It matters. Go read 1 Peter 3.7. When a man's not treating his wife right, he's not treating his wife in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, and, and it says a little phrase there in 1 Peter 3.7, lest your prayers be hindered. It matters. Lest your prayers be hindered. Go read Isaiah 1. Go read Amos 5, where God tells these people He despises them when they gather together for prayer because of their godless living. It matters. So what's this text 
Really the whole text, verse 1 through 10, chapter 2, 1 Timothy, what's it calling us to? To be holy men and women devoted to prayer together. Now, as I try to close this out, do we have this at Grace Community Church? Do we have this at Grace Community Church? Now, this is the part in the sermon where I'm supposed to rebuke everybody into a good prayer life. I'm supposed to just rebuke all of us, you know, into healthy corporate prayer. This is the part where I'm supposed to do that. But I, I, I do, I want to say this, I, and I mean this, that I am so thankful and so encouraged uh, by, by our church and what God is doing, what God has done, the way God has grown us, that when we come together, it doesn't feel like this unnatural thing to pray. That when I come up here, and even in a moment, when we're about to go to God in corporate prayer together again, I don't feel like I'm putting on a prayer performance for people, but that we are going to God in prayer together. When there's random gatherings of prayer, or the prayer meetings that happen in homes throughout the week, when these things go down, it's a sweet time of fellowship. I'm encouraged, I'm thankful, and I hope you are too. But we do need to be warned, and we do need to grow. Brothers and sisters, we need to grow. Listen, first of all, the prayer supplications, I urge this, and giving of thanks be made for all people. I desire that men pray everywhere, and likewise the women. Listen, we need to grow in that. And we need to be warned that when churches slip away into unfaithfulness to God, and even unfaithfulness in doctrine, where does it often begin? The prayer life goes to nothing or becomes insincere and unengaged. We need to be warned by that and we need to grow. And so here's, here's a few ways. In fact, here's four ways that I want us to respond to 1 Timothy 2, 1-10 or, or four ways that I want this passage to affect us. Okay? And I'll mention these quickly. Number one, may we never disconnect healthy church from praying church. Brothers and sisters, may we never disconnect healthy church from praying church. Now, I see, I see this tendency to do that. Please be warned by it. Please beware. You know, I think about the, um, the, the, the movement of people that have been affected and influenced in a good way by non-marks. You don't know what that is. It's a group. It's a book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and it's a group that has done some beautiful work in pushing the Church of Jesus Christ towards sound ecclesiology. And I'm so thankful for it. The, the church in Iraq that we visited recently is very influenced by Nine Marks. But I do have a concern in the midst of that. As thankful as I am for that, that so often people grab hold of those Nine Marks, and yet this prayer is neglected. That there's this, uh, I've got my I's dotted and my T's crossed and my ecclesiology, but we're not a people that call out to God. And so I beg you, please, never disconnect in our lives or any place you're trying to discern healthy church. Don't disconnect healthy church from praying church. And one way I want to encourage you is I'll, I'll go straight to the, the leader of Nine Marks, Mark Dever, and I'll give you a quote from Mark Dever. He was in an interview and they were talking about prayer in the local church. And as they talked about prayer in the local church, the last question that he was asked was, hey, anybody listen, you know, Mark, anybody listen to this today? A pastor that feels convicted. They feel convicted that they don't put enough weight on corporate prayer like what you're describing. What would you say to that guy? And Mark Dever said this. 
Be willing to have people leave your church. He's talking about as you reform the prayer life of the church. Be willing to have people leave your church. You need to pray so that so much that the people who only pretend to know the God you're praying to are bored and offended. Pray so much, pray so hard that people that only pretend to know the God we're praying to are bored and offended. I think it's a good charge. Second thing I want you to take away, the way I want this to affect us, is I want, to, I want all of us to value corporate prayer. To value it. It says here in verse 1, first of all, first of all, so value it. Now listen, people that are desperate for God, desperate people, value corporate prayer. It's like, God, I need you. I've come to the end of myself. I need you. And they value it. Faith-filled people value corporate prayer. Go read Luke 18 where it makes that connection between those who cry out to God day and night and those who have faith in the earth. They're the same. Faithful people value corporate prayer. But worldly people do not value it. Why would you value communication to another world when you love this world so much? Value corporate prayer. Don't be worldly. Be otherworldly. When we gather up, as we have today, on a Sunday, and we call out to God together, value it. When you meet in your homes, or those fellowship groups, and you're able to be there, and you're calling out to God with the saints, value that time in prayer. When you have random gatherings and meetings, and why don't you take time to pray with those saints that are in your home, and value Corporate prayer together. Value it. Number three, faithfully attend corporate prayer. Verse 1 says, I urge you. He's urging the church at Ephesus to this. I'm urging my brothers and sisters right now to this. Faithfully attend corporate prayer. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the prayers. They were devoted to it. Hebrews 10.24-25 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's when we pray. Don't forsake that, as is the habit of some. I'm getting that habit. But faithfully attend corporate prayer. And look, to do that, you're going to need a, this lens. Diligence and delight. Diligence and delight, and delight. Be diligent to be there, but look, it's not just diligence. Train your heart to delight in corporate prayer. But when the delight's not there, be diligent. And let that diligence lead you to delight in corporate prayer. And last thing I'll say is, number four, brothers and sisters, be wholeheartedly engaged in corporate prayer. Wholeheartedly engaged. In other words, show up and be eager to pray. I cannot wait. Or two or three are gathered in my name. I cannot wait to call on this God with the people that love Him. Be eager to pray. Be expectant when you come. That you would expect God to do great things. Call upon me. I'll show you great and mighty things which you did not know. Be expected that you come to God in corporate prayer and you leave different. You leave moved in your heart towards God. Be expectant. Be engaged. Be focused in. Don't check out. Be focused in. And when your focus gets off, fight for it. You've been there, hadn't you, when we're praying to God and all of a sudden your mind begins to wander? Brothers and sisters, fight! Lean in! In corporate prayer, respond. 
Be responsive in corporate prayer. Respond with your heart. If it helps you to open your mouth and say, Amen. Yes, Lord. Do it, Lord. Praise to the living God. Then respond in prayer. But brothers and sisters of Christ, be wholeheartedly engaged. Don't let it pass you by. Beautiful, beautiful jewels are right there of corporate prayer. Don't let it pass you by. Let's pray now. God, we lift up your name. We lean in together right now to call out to you. We lift up your name. You are the one true God. Mighty in power. Perfect in wisdom. Holy in all your ways. Mediator, we lift you up. Lord Jesus, our mediator. The one and only mediator, Lord. Thank you that you came. Thank you, Lord, that you came. You were the only one to come. The only one qualified. Thank you for a ransom. Thank you, that you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross for us and you paid a price that we couldn't pay. You cleared out our debt of sin, Lord, and gave us forgiveness and gave us life. We praise you, Lord. We worship you. There's none like you, God. You alone are worthy of our worship and our devotion and our obedience, God. Help us to give it to you. God, free us from the shackles of this world, the covetousness in this world, worldliness and love of the things of this earth, God. Free us from it, Lord. And let us be fully devoted to you. God, I pray for Grace Community Church that you, Lord, would make us a people of prayer. That you would, that you would raise up, God, hearts to cry out to you, God, to pour out our hearts to you. Raise that up in our midst. Make us a people of prayer, Lord. God, teach us to pray. Teach us what it's like, Lord, to enter into your presence, to come into the throne room of, gra- the throne room of grace, Lord, and to be caught up with worship and intercession and supplication there, Lord. God, teach us how to do it. Teach us how to, how to be a people, a house of prayer. God, I pray that you would forgive us of prayerlessness. God, forgive us of heartless praying, unengaged praying, God. Forgive us of these things. God, change us. We love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.